You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, yes, happy Father's Day to everybody here. It's great to see you. It's great to see this pocket of students up here. You guys not only survived, but thrived. Well done. Glad to see you. Father's Day brings with it a measure of uh, reflection, doesn't it? It does for me. Think back on the times when, you know, I raid dad's closet as a little kid. You know, those pictures of like little kids getting dad's shoes, right? Get dad's tie. Try to think like, act a little bit like dad. Then there's this pendulum swing the other way, like around 11 or 12 years old, 13, where it's anything but dad. Right? We're kind of in that a little bit with our kids. And then life sort of has this like kind of balance back out, right? Or you find yourself back to the middle, find yourself thinking like, acting like, looking like, kind of becoming your dad. Knowing your dad, really knowing him, it's a process, a process marked by transitions, tensions, conversations, and celebrations. Why? Because dads are shapers. Dads form us in ways that maybe we don't even fully recognize. Along the way, we find ourselves asking questions like, how was dad's presence, or maybe your story, how was dad's absence shaped me? Am I learning everything that I'm supposed to learn? Am I doing everything I'm supposed to do? Maybe ultimately, am I becoming who I'm really supposed to be? Heavy stuff for a Sunday morning, I know. Hang there for a minute. I think those questions that we ask of our earthly fathers, we also ask maybe of our heavenly father. Am I learning all am I supposed to learn? Am I doing everything I'm supposed to do? Am I becoming who I'm supposed to be? And if we don't really wrestle with those questions whether earthly father or heavenly father, if we can't get some level of security and assurance and clarity and certainty around those, we'll miss out on the relationship that our father wants for us. And so I want to let you know where we're going this morning. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and John is going to help us understand how we can know that we belong to our heavenly father. I don't know if you caught it, but the subtitle for this series is That You May Know. This is week two of our 10-week summer teaching series through the book of 1 John. My hope for you is that you can know that you belong to your Heavenly Father. This text is going to break up into two pieces. Verses 1 through 2 focuses on Jesus as Savior, and then verses 3 through 6, Jesus as King. We've got a long way to go, so let's go ahead and get right to it. Let's jump right in. 1 John chapter 2, and take a look in verse 1. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus as Savior. And if you're a note taker or you want another little subtitle, this one is the application of salvation. John loves to talk about salvation this morning. First, we're going to talk about salvation applied. So here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children... 
I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That's a million-dollar theological word. We'll come back to that one. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John starts off right out of the gate with this really tender, intimate, fatherly tone by calling his readers what? What's he say? Little children. He uses that phrase seven times in this letter. And it means everything that you might assume it would mean. It reflects the care that he has for them. It reflects the loving authority he has over them. It reflects the hopes and the dreams that he has for them. Wise old Pastor John doesn't view himself as a detached, distant father. He's an up-close and personal spiritual father. He's a shepherd. But what I love about what John does right out of the gate is he's so clear with his purpose. He says, I'm writing this so you don't sin. (laughs) He's just like, here, here's why I'm writing you. One purpose. Now stop for a second. Doesn't that sound like kind of Sunday school? Like kind of basic? A little like diminutive like John. Last week, we talked about the situation in first century Ephesus where John pastored as an older man. Inside, false teachers are sprouting up. Outside, the Roman Empire is heating up. Publicly, the church's image is moving from nice, quaint little group of people to threatening and dangerous, subversive minority. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Does that world remind you of any other world with which you might be acquainted. So here's John writing an email, and the subject line, it's marked urgent, he says, your walk with Jesus. That's interesting to me. He could have said, I'm writing to tell you about how you need to handle Emperor Domitian. He was the guy that deported John to the island of Patmos, where he worked as a slave for 15 years. He goes, are we going to need to get clarity on that? But he doesn't. Why? He could have said, I'm writing to you so that you know how to squish false teachers in your church. He gets there eventually in the letter, but not right up front. Why? He could have said, I'm writing to you as the last surviving disciple of the Lord Jesus to give you my opinion about insert issue here. But he doesn't. Why? What's he see? He's saying, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. And you're going, what? John, you don't get it, old man. You're out of touch. Don't you understand what's going on in our world? The Roman Empire is at our throats, John. We can barely breathe, John. We got false teachers sprouting up in here like weeds in a garden, John. And you want to talk about private devotions, piety, and personal holiness? John, we need more than Sunday school. Come on. With all those ideas on the table, all those potential topics, all those begging for attention headlines, and John goes, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the severity of sin and the sufficiency of a Savior. What's he doing? What's he understand? What's he see? John sees something that eludes many of us, that my greatest problem is my personal sin and my greatest hope is a personal Savior. 
The gospel is always the headline. Always. He's right in line with Paul. When Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is a lot for Paul, who knew a lot. He's right in line with Peter when Peter says that the church exists, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Taken on a whole, the voice of the early church is a chorus of voices saying that the best pathway to a changed world is a changed life. The best pathway to a changed world is a changed life. I'm writing so that you don't sin. You want to change your world, North Canton Chapel? Great. So does everybody else with an opinion. (laughs) How is the church different? Because we believe that sin is the problem and Jesus is the solution. You see what John's doing here? He is reducing, simplifying, distilling all of the complex pain of the human dilemma into one idea. He's boldly, confidently, tenderly, wisely, fatherly saying, I am writing with one purpose, to deal with all of human suffering at its root, the severity of sin and the sufficiency of a cross. (laughs) Little children... I'm writing so you don't sin. Now, that is unbelievably, frustratingly, audaciously, maddeningly simplistic. And I know how it sounds. Because this is 2021. And on the face of things, this sounds naive. Sounds dismissive. Sounds childish. Sounds like he's wanting to sweep things under a rug. Look the other direction. That doesn't work for the real world, John. We've got socialism to deal with. We've got racism to deal with. We've got critical race theory. We've got economic collapse. We've got the political left and the political right. John, and you want to talk about sin. Quaint. To be gospel-centered in the 21st century, or to be gospel-centered in the first century, is a matter of faith. Because it means that we believe that underneath all of those problems are still hard hearts that need to be softened and lost sheep who need to be found. And you've got to square with the question, do I believe that the gospel is enough to change me and in changing me, change my world? Do I believe that the best pathway to a changed world is a changed life? Guys, I'm not worried about any of that other stuff I just listed and neither should you be. I'm only worried when the church gets distracted by it and we stop proclaiming the gospel. John wants us to understand that the battle for the future of the church, then as now, isn't in the courtroom, the newsroom. It isn't in the voting booth. It starts in the prayer closet. It starts when I hit my knees. Given the choice between attacking the darkness out there and the darkness in here, John says, let's start here first. That's hard to do, John. I know this is hitting really heavy early on in the message. We're like half a verse in. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know. In the last 18 months, I've been very convinced of one thing. That the church's greatest hindrance to ministry effectiveness is not masks, mandates, governors, or restrictions. The church's greatest hindrance to ministry effectiveness is our own personal sin. But here's the thing. 
you turn that inside out, and you've got the church's greatest opportunity for growth. That's not me putting a positive spin on it. I actually believe that, and I think you might believe that too. I believe the church's greatest opportunity for growth is not when we wait for a culture to become more conducive to biblical thinking, because those days are long gone, but when we become a people who are more wrecked, captivated by the truths of the gospel, when we weep over our sin to the point of desperation, we cling to the truths of the gospel to the point of tears, and we share the hope of Christ to anybody who doesn't know him. That's where hope starts. Real simple gospel. Recover that in here first. And you have the makings of a revival. Make no mistake, John is not being quaint. He is not being dismissive. He is not being cute. He is not being childish. Sunday school. He isn't burying his head in the sand, looking the other way, or sweeping pain under a rug. He is leveraging almost 90 years of experience with the king of the universe, to say one thing. My biggest problem is personal sin, and my only solution is a personal savior. I cannot overestimate how important that truth is for us to get at this point in our culture. We exist to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. And if we do not raise our voice and lend our lives to the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, who will? This is our job. That's why John starts the way that he does. But John, like any good pastor, he anticipates what's next. He doesn't just say, hey, here's why I'm writing. He goes, yeah, but there's something in here, right? Because... We break from this in a minute because he says, I'm writing so that you won't sin. And then without barely any time to catch our breath, he goes, verse 2, he says, well, but if anybody does sin, which is so good, because I'm like, John, you know me so well. <laughs> like, I'm writing so that you don't sin. I'm like, oh, you clearly, yeah. but if you do, because <laughs> we still sin, right? I do, you do. Well, then what? Are we helpless? Are we lost? Are we, are we not saved? Then what, John? Hardly. Now comes the real Fun stuff. Verse 2, he says, we have an advocate, so good, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. So two words, advocate and propitiation. We got to get to that first. What does it mean to be our advocate? Jesus is our advocate. Advocate's a great word in Greek. John is the only New Testament writer to use the word. He uses it five times. Three of those are in the Gospel of John, and then also here in 1 John. Here's what's most interesting to me. Every other time, John uses the word advocate. He's describing the person of the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside of, okay? But here, who's he talking about? Jesus. Now, what is that? For you theology nerds, buckle up. This is going to be some fun. An advocate is someone who comes alongside someone when they need it the most. An advocate is someone who comes alongside someone when they are powerless to protect themselves, help themselves, or save themselves. Someone else needs to step up. Someone else puts their reputation on the line, stands up, speaks up, and says, they're worth it, I'll defend them. That's what an advocate does. Now think with me for a minute. It's one thing to advocate for somebody when you know they're innocent, right? 
Like, oh, I'll put my reputation on my line for you. Like, you're, you're a pretty good guy. Yeah, sure. Like, you're not going to sully my name by attaching it to you. You're innocent. Like, I believe. Like, if I was a lawyer taking a case where I believe someone's innocent, well, it's kind of a little bit easier. But that's not us. Not by a long shot. Not even close. Advocating for guilty Brandon Marshall is like co-signing a car loan for somebody who just filed for bankruptcy. This, this is like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like giving your house key to a convicted felon. You're like, that, why would I do that? That makes no sense. Jesus knows that about me. And still he advocates for me. What? That makes no sense. That's crazy. Every unspoken indicting thought, every unkind word that I mutter under my breath just to let off some steam, right? Every nook and cranny of my dark and wicked heart. Jesus knows all that. Still, he steps forward. Jesus, in full knowledge that I am unworthy of his defense, defends me nonetheless. What kind of love is that? Why would you do that for somebody? That's called grace. We're sinners, and we know it. We are guilty, and we feel it. And right before the evidence is read in the courtroom, Jesus steps up, stands up, and speaks up and says, they're worth it. I'll defend them. But it gets better because there's a question. How? How does he defend me? What's the mechanism by which I am moved from the guilty column to the innocent column? And that's that big theological word, propitiation where he says he is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2. Big theological word. Propitiation means the removal of God's wrath by an acceptable sacrifice. Now, I know what just happened because whenever we talk about God's wrath, little red flags shoot up. And we're like, wrath? I don't like that one. Like, I thought God loved me. God's loving, right? God is love. Is he angry at me or does he love me? Answer. Yeah, both. Here's how this works. God is holy. He can't be around sin. And like we said last week in 1 John 1, I am steeped in sin to my socks. And so God looks at my sin. I have enraged his holiness. He is justifiably wrathful toward me, a guilty sinner. That's the bad news. And if God said to me, look, you broke my law. You sinned, sorry, I'm done with you now. You've lost your way. I'm tired of chasing you down. You're too far gone. We are through. If God were to say that, he would be completely justified in saying it. But he doesn't. Because if God were to say that, he would be just. He would not be loving. But he is both of these things. And so God says, I'm coming to get you. And this is where amazing grace shows up. Grace says, I'm not content to leave you alone anymore, lost in your sin. I'm going to make the first move. Grace says, I don't want you at arm's length anymore. I'm going to chase you down. Grace says, I'm going to take the initiative. I'll bring you back home, even if it means the cross. An acceptable sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't leave us alone? In the cross, God's justice is satisfied and his grace is magnified. In the cross, everything God requires from me, he provides to me. In the cross, Jesus is the one advocating for my freedom and he's the price paid to secure it. 
That is amazing grace. Now, what's with that phrase at the end of verse 2? Because he says, well, he's our advocate and he's our propitiation, not just for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's a curious phrase because at first reading, it kind of sounds like, well, okay, everybody's in. Like, hang on a minute here. I thought we we're talking about like Christ and Christ alone. Like, everybody's in? What about those who've never heard about Jesus? What about those who've never confessed Jesus? What about those who deny Jesus? Like, the whole world? Is that true? Like, whatever you believe, like Jesus, Buddha, Allah, the force, whatever, everybody's in? So let's clarify that. Really good interpretive principle. Whenever you're reading your Bible, for those of you that are new to this whole thing, let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? It's just one thing to kind of file away later. And so if we're going to do that, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Later, in chapter 5, we'll find out later that John says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Okay, so clearly Christ matters for John. So if he's not saying everyone's in, what's he saying? The sins of the whole world, what's he mean? When John says, not just for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, here's what he's saying. Propitiation, okay, this righteous sacrifice of Christ on the cross, isn't applied to everybody, but it is available to anybody. You see the difference? This isn't applied to everyone, but it's available to anyone. Here's a helpful way to think about it. His blood is sufficient for anybody. It is efficient for those who claim Christ. God can make anybody new, but you've got to come to the cross. You've got to confess him. You've got to square with your sin and acknowledge his righteous sacrifice. This isn't everybody is saved, but anybody can be saved. Now, that sounds like abstract theology, so let's get out of the clouds for a minute. Why does this matter? Make much of Jesus every day to everyone. Why? Because no one is too far gone. Make much of Jesus every day to everyone. Why? Because no one is out of reach. Because anybody can be saved. Because everyone is welcome at the foot of the cross. Because it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, what you think. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your backstory is. Grace is available for anybody who acknowledges the severity of their sin and confesses the sufficiency of the cross. This is the gospel that John wants us to understand. And we're right back to where we started. My greatest need or my greatest problem is my personal sin. And the only solution is a personal Savior. Now, this is John's first point. <laughs> Two verses. There's a lot in there. But he starts with this idea of Jesus as Savior, the application of salvation. And things are going to turn here in a minute. Verse 3, where we're going to get, is like this giant hinge. So now that he's talked about everything that Jesus can do, everything that Jesus has done, this has to go somewhere. Because it's not enough to go like, yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, great. John, I'm in. I'm there. Because John is going, well, now what? What am I supposed to do with this, John? Where does this lead? Let's pick things up in verse 3 in just a second. The second part of this section isn't Jesus as Savior. He moves into Jesus as King. Jesus as King. He's not just the Savior over your life. He's the King in your life. 
And this means the implication of salvation. Let's read this in verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now here we get a really clear picture of John's teaching style, his writing style. Okay, John is different than Paul. He's different than Peter. Peter is like this loud, bombastic, loud mouth, right? That's kind of what we like about Peter. He impacts the early church the way a bull impacts a china shop. You're just like, that's how Peter writes, how Peter thinks. Paul is really litigious. He's like a lawyer. And so Paul builds these like massive theological constructs and he's really tight language. That's how Paul. But John, John's like a jeweler. He's like a jeweler who picks up a diamond and he looks at it really close and as he turns it, it catches a new glint from the sun and every little ray of sunlight that this diamond catches as he slowly turns it reflects a new angle of this diamond he keeps turning it and the diamond becomes more and more beautiful that's how John writes it's almost like he writes in a circle and so he says the same thing in this text a number of different ways well what's he talking about it's right there at the beginning of verse 3 he says by this we may know we've come to know him so he wants to know how do you know if your relationship with Jesus is real? You ever ask that question? Seriously, let's just kind of muse on this for a minute. How do you know that you're really saved? It's a really important question to square with. How do you know? There's a whole point of my life where I'm going, maybe this is all just kind of made up. Like, maybe I'm just sort of like going to church to kind of do the moral thing. Church makes moral people. Does it make new people? No. Am I really saved? Do I really know him? Did I just like walk an aisle once or pray a prayer and then what? Now I'm just a better person? Have I really been made new? Do I really know him? It's a very practical question. And if you've never asked it, you should. Well, what's John saying about this? You take this whole chunk together, what he's saying is that you know your relationship with Jesus is real when you keep his commandments, when you start to look like him, start to become like who he is. The same idea. Quick spoiler alert, John is going to spend the rest of his book talking about what those commandments are. So that's going to start next week. But for now, quick summary, here it is. If I know Jesus, I must walk in the way that he walked. Or to put it another way, the Savior that I love must impact the life that I live. John's trying to correct a spiritual fallacy that is just as popular in the first century as it is today. John wants me to understand that I don't get to enjoy the benefits of the cross and reject the implications of the cross. I can't detach thankfulness for Christ from obedience to Christ. I can't enjoy what Jesus gives me but never submit to his authority over me. I can't go, heaven sounds great, free gift, awesome. Now, back to my life on my terms, John. That doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus is king. He owns you. No negotiation, and there are implications for this. Could you imagine actually saying it to Jesus? And I'm like, hey, Jesus, thank you so much uh, 
you know, I, I acknowledge everything that we talked about last week. You are the co-eternal, co-creator, eternally existent, second person of the Trinity. Wow! I worship you for that. Also, thank you for stepping into this world as a baby to grow up and live a sinless life, to provide a perfect sacrifice for me, advocate, propitiation. Awesome. Jesus, that is so great. But for the 70, 80, 90 years I've got on this earth, Jesus, I've got some goals. I've got some stuff I want to do. I've got some things that I really want to get done, Jesus. So thank you for, you know, hell canceled, heaven guaranteed. That's great. But why don't you kind of go over there for a little while? I'll see you on Sunday. Right? That's ludicrous. That makes no sense. How can someone who has given me so much become so peripheral to me? And John's going, no, it doesn't work that way. Because he's really asking, well, what's the minimum I can do spiritually? <laughs> and I'm not trying to tighten the screws too hard on you, but if your spiritual life is defined by minimums, I'm not sure that you're saved, and I'm really worried about you. Let me just leave that there for a minute. I know we're all trying to get better, and that's good. But if we enter into this thing like, okay, God, I will give you this, but not this. I'm keeping my life, my terms. I got stuff I want to do. I, don't, I just don't see that in the New Testament. When Jesus died, he did not just secure your future. He also settled your present. We're not meant to live life defining our life by spiritual minimums. That'd be like me going to Mandy and going like, hey, um, hey, last 17 years of marriage have been awesome. And uh, man, I'm just so thankful to be married to you. Um, but, you know, maybe we need to readjust and recalibrate a little bit. I understand that, um, you know, quality time is really important to you. That's like her love language. And so I'd say, well, you know, um, but I'm pretty busy these days. So maybe, like, what is, like, the minimum amount of dates that you want to do? Like, maybe, like, is one a quarter? Once a quarter? Does that sound okay? No? And gifts, like, are also kind of a thing. So, like, Valentine's Day, maybe I can swing by a discount drug mart, pick up one of those, like, roses with the cellophane on it for, like, a buck ninety-nine. Bring that home. Birthday. Maybe, like, we can hit up the McDonald's dollar menu. That'd be great. Christmas, we could do like a white elephant gift exchange, just kind of whatever I've got laying around the house, repackage it, $5 minimum, good, right? You never talk to your spouse that way. You never talk to your friends that way, right? But I talk to Jesus like that all the time. <laughs> I go like, well, God, yeah, you really don't want me to, I can't go there, love that person, do that thing. No, I'm, I'm still holding on to some stuff. How much do I really want to be married to her if I say that? <laughs> Not very much. And John goes, to quote the princess bride, inconceivable. Why would you even think that way? Don't live your life with Jesus based on minimum viable relationship. And so John picks up his pen and he says, if you know him, you'll follow him. Simple as that. Simple, not easy. Not comfortable, but beautiful. Not neat and tidy, but so, so worth it. Knowing Jesus personally means living for him completely. Now, what does that mean? I think it means some things for us personally, which we'll get to in a minute. And I think it means some things for us corporately as a church. When you think about church, you take this idea of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as King, and you put it together, and then you say, okay, well, how does a church express those things? So first, we'll deal with the corporate, and then we'll deal with the personal in a minute. Um, I don't know about you, but I really do believe 
that the church has a very vital role to play in the coming culture. I don't know exactly what's on the horizon, and neither do you, but if I'm reading the clouds right, we hinted at this last week, the darker our world gets, the more his light is needed. And so before I tell you what I think it does mean, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. The church's role in the coming culture is not, hey, come look at our cool thing. That worked in the 80s and 90s. Like, hey, we got a concert. Come, check it out. Right? Come look at our cool thing. Come, look, come see. That doesn't work. I also don't think it's a, it's a posture that says, hey, here's why our, what our church is doing is better than what that church is doing. That's not what we do. The biggest shift that we must make as a church, I don't think this is just North Canton Chapel, I think this is the church as a whole, is to shift our orientations away from consumers of spiritual activity into contributors to spiritual change. And I think that is a more massive shift than we really even understand. If we're going to walk as Jesus walked, we've got to be less concerned about doing church the way we've always done it, and we've got to be more concerned about being church to those who have never seen it. Consumers of spiritual activity to contributors of spiritual change. That is a way bigger shift. Because here's the thing. Like, it is so comfortable to be a consumer, guys, because we're like that in every other aspect of our life. Why would church be any different? When you go look at a, at, a, at a product on Amazon, before you pull the trigger, what do you do? Read the reviews. Right? Go check out a restaurant. Right? You go to Google, you go to Yelp. What do you do? Read the reviews. And then you make your decision. We are consumers in every other aspect of our life, and church is the one place where it's like, no, that's not it. Why? Because the first thing you do when you get here is you meet a Savior who says, come and die. Jesus, that is not a very good sales pitch. And he goes, I know. <laughs> I'm not trying to market church to anybody. <laughs> That's not the gospel. The gospel turns my life inside out and says, because I know Jesus, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for them. Who? Anybody who doesn't know him yet. Life becomes profoundly others-oriented. And the rest of John's letter is going to unfold what that actually means. But for right now, we've got to be sliced to this idea that knowing Jesus personally means living for him completely. So I want to be kind of practical for just a second and um, just pull off and have a quick little conversation. So um, COVID, I think, was like the great church shakeup. Okay? And so what do I mean by that? I mean, like, if God has ever called you to like try a new church or like move around or shift or called you back to church. Maybe some of you who are in this room or watching online this morning, you've never been a part of a church. COVID kind of gave you permission to get a little loose around the edges. And then everybody went online, right? And so like, well, if you've ever wanted to check out a church, just watch and this is kind of what you're going to get on Sunday morning. So I want to say some words that I just want you to hear from me, um, especially if you're considering calling North Canton Chapel your home church. First off, uh, welcome. I'm glad that you are here. This is a wonderful place. I'm a little biased, but I really love this place and I love these people. Don't be here if you think that church is going to be where you get everything you want. Because that's not what we do here. Don't be here if you're silently wondering, like, well, here's what I want. Will you give this to me? That's not who we are. Don't be here because you love the preaching or the worship or the whatever. That is a 90-minute slice one day of the week. You should be here if you believe that our world is dark, 
and that you need to be changed. And we're counting on Jesus. You should be here if you want to be equipped to carry the light of Jesus into a dark world. Because that's what we do. When I say we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, I don't want you to hear that like some trite, pithy little marketing statement that we like throw out there like a commercial and it's meant to lure church shoppers. <laughs> that's a commitment of what we're not going to do and it's a commitment to what we actually do. So if that's you, you want to get on board with that, that's where we're going. Because I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. I believe the church has a wonderful future in America and in our world. I think it is much different than what many of us have experienced or are even prepared to deal with. So that's the corporate implication, shifting from consumer to contributor. What about personally? Now, here's where things get tough because I can't give you the answer. <laughs> what does it mean for you personally to take this idea of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as King and go, gosh, what do I do with that in my own life? What do you want me to do, Jesus? I can't tell you exactly I can only describe it for you, and I can tell you that it is beautiful, it is terrifying, and it is wonderful. For Peter, James, and John, and they left their dad's fishing business, they dropped their nets, and they followed Jesus. Security, gone. For Zacchaeus, he gives up his job, he repays back four times what he cheated just because he loves Jesus. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, he said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I don't know what that means for you. You want revival to come? I do. I believe we can see revival in my lifetime. It starts with me hitting my knees and asking, Jesus, what do you want from me? What can I give you? After everything you've given me, what can I give you? just as a way of saying thank you. My life, that's too small. <laughs> Students, sorry, I'll put you on the spotlight for a minute. I believe God may be calling some of you into ministry as you think about what he has for you in your life. Ready to orient your life around a savior? It's terrifying and it's wonderful. Parents, grandparents, your living room is your cathedral. You ready to orient your whole home, your whole family around the Savior? I believe everybody has a next step. And the church's job is not to shame you for what you're not doing. The church's job is to help you discover and equip you for what you were created to do. So in a little bit, we're going to close. We're going to sing a song, um, and it's called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And, um, and here we are. We're in the second week of a 10-week series. <laughs> um, here's what I want to call you to do. Sometimes I believe the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. I don't know what your next step is. And so I'm just going to turn you loose on it and say, you go figure it out with Jesus. Because only he can really speak it to you anyway. I'm not going to leverage authority in that way. But as the band comes back on and as the band sings and plays, you can do a couple of things. One, you can stand up if you want. That's great. You can sit right where you are. That's fine. You can get on your knees and kneel by your chair if you're able or if you feel the spirit leading you to do that. Or if you feel like you got some unfinished business with Jesus and you go, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that he's my savior and I definitely don't know if he's my king. Maybe there's some stuff you're holding back. Some stuff that you just want to be free of and go, here, take it. If that's you, I do want to invite you. Just come up here. 
No one's going to bother you. No one's going to think you're weird. But just come on up here and kneel at this altar. It's just a place where you can do some business with God. Sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. And as you do, just ask Jesus, what am I holding back? Will you show it to me? Give me the courage to give it up, whatever that it is for you. He loves you, I promise you, and he's worth it. Let me pray. Father, we come to you only because of the blood of your son. We come to you knowing that we are your adopted children. You have pursued and you are calling home. God, I thank you for this truth that Christ is our advocate and he is our propitiation. Help us to walk in the way that he does. For your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.